Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me uh, this morning on hopefully this last fully Zoom service. Um, and today we're looking at the story of Bathsheba and David. Now, I know a lot has been said about this story. I feel like everybody knows this story. Artists have depicted scenes from it in paintings, literature, music, theater for centuries. This story has definitely seeped into our culture. And even the name Bathsheba, when it comes up, is always associated with adultery, temptation. So honestly, I didn't really want to preach on this text because we're just too familiar with it, you know. Um, and I don't know about you, but once something has been drilled into my brain so many times, it's really just hard to reimagine it in a fresh new light or allow the Holy Spirit to speak something new into that. Um, and yet, you know, this is what we affirm about scripture, right? It's living, it's moving, it's breathing. And so today I'd like to actually take a page out of Schnicker's playbook and really just share with you a couple of observations I had while studying the text this week. Um, but I'd love to hear from you as well if something speaks to you anew today because uh, really after studying the story this week, I was just blown away by how much actually there can be said about this story and really how little has been said about it. Um, so I'd love to hear from you all too in the talk back. But let's get started. So let's set the stage for this story, right? We're, we're in Jerusalem, the holy city. It's evening and a cool breeze sweeps through the alleyways, breaking through the heat of the day. Jerusalem sits high on a mountain. Um, imagine maybe something like the Griffith Observatory. Um, I don't actually know what that hill is, but um, imagine like a city built on that hill. And because this city is built on a hill, um, it's actually common even today for there to be walkways built on top of people's roofs. So because I'm a visual person and I kind of wanted to share uh, uh, with you kind of what I'm envisioning, um, I wanted to share with you a short clip of when Steve and I were in Jerusalem a few years ago, hanging out around dusk when I imagined David would have been. Um, so um, while you're watching this, um, just, you know, notice children playing, adults, adults lounging, just hanging out, walking on the roofs. Let's see if I can figure this out one second. Great. Hopefully that all worked for you all. Yeah. Um, so this is basically the setting that we enter as we see David rising from his rest. And something's wrong. Why is David even here? Resting. There's a battle going on and he's not with his troops as a king should be. 
The story has only just begun and already something is wrong. He stands on his roof and then he sees her. That's Sheba. One of the few women in the Bible that is described as beautiful, stunning. And she's bathing. Now let's pause here because much has been said about Bathsheba. Uh, you know, this part of the story has really been used to promote purity culture um, by telling young women to avoid anything that might cause our brothers to sin. And putting, of course, uh, the onus of what is to come uh, on Bathsheba or on us women. And preachers, scholars, and readers uh, like us, have turned Bathsheba into a seductress, a manipulator, an adulteress. And David gets interpreted as a victim to her beauty, too weak to control his own urges, and therefore not responsible for his own actions. Is this fair? The text says, now she was purifying herself after her period. According to Israelite Levitical law, women were actually required to have a ritual bath after their period. Bathsheba is unclean. Note, not sinful, but unclean. There is a difference, not the same things. But because she is unclean, she is unable to enter the temple until she goes through the ritual rite of cleansing. Bathsheba is in her right place. She's supposed to be there. She knows the rules and she's following them. David, on the other hand, is not where he is supposed to be. He is supposed to be with his troops at war. She is supposed to be cleansing herself. So David sees Bathsheba. Notice the text doesn't describe any sort of temptation or solicitation on her part. She's just cleaning herself. But he must know who she is. He inquires about her. He then sends for her. Then he takes, and finally he lays. The original Hebrew moves so quickly here with one verb right after another. Readers in the original Hebrew would be able to feel the tension building. David is hardly passive here. He is quick, swift, methodical. Does Bathsheba even have a choice? The king just sent for her. And instead of going kicking and screaming, she is obeying the dictates of the king. But is that reason to say that she went willingly? The text really doesn't give us any sense of consent. In fact, the text doesn't say anything at all. Instead, nearly all the verbs are attached to David. He sees, he sends, he takes, he lays. So let's just call this what it is, as many scholars have done. David is abusing his power. This is rape. In fact, many scholars argue that Bathsheba took two baths here. The first one being where David sees her on his rooftop, and then another right after she leaves his presence, washing off the filth of the axe under her. And how much more abuse have we placed on Bathsheba by making these interpretive accusations of her own role in her own abuse? 
Not even the Bible does this. In fact, Bathsheba is never accused or punished for her adultery in scriptures. The scholar Will Gaffney says in the subsequent narrative, the one that we might get to next week in the lectionary, um, Nathan the prophet and God treat David as a rapist by condemning him, but not imputing sin to Bathsheba as a complicit consenting person. Their treatment of her is actually consistent with the treatment of women who are raped in the Torah statutes. But having to prove to the reader that Bathsheba was raped is uncomfortably similar to the plight which many women and girls find themselves in. Having to prove to the police and general public that they were raped. But we'll get back, we'll get more to that in a minute. Let's continue our story. Bathsheba is sent home. How long is she home for? We don't know. Could be a week, could be a few months. The story doesn't really seem concerned to tell us much about what Bathsheba is going through. But we do know that eventually she sends word to the king. She's pregnant. Can you imagine? Her husband is away at war, David's war, risking his life for David's cause. We don't even know if she has the means to care for this child. What will society do to her once they realize she's pregnant while her husband is away? And even if she tells them the truth, would people believe her? She's just a woman, right? And David is the beloved king, the man after God's own heart. She is vulnerable. She needs help. But who can she go to? She has no choice but to go back to her abuser. Gaffney says, this is the story of poor women everywhere who because of their poverty must turn to help, turn for help to their abuser because they have nowhere else to turn. And to make matters worse, we'll later learn that eventually she'll actually have to live with her rapist, share his bed, bear him more children. Abusers and victims exist side by side and many victims much like Bathsheba, find themselves seeking help and being dependent on the very ones who caused their situation. So what does David do? Does he acknowledge his egregious sin here? Does he stop to check in with Bathsheba, see how she's doing? Of course not. Moving quickly towards self-preservation, David devises his next plan. Again, he sends someone else, someone else, to fetch Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. What follows is one desperate attempt after another of David trying to convince Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba. He'll do anything to distance himself from his abuse. This is a story of contrasts. And while we watch the abuse, the cover-up, the conniving of David, we see an honorable man in Uriah. You see, Uriah is actually following Torah law, which commands that soldiers maintain ritual purity on the battle camp. Maybe it's tempting to go to his home, be with his wife, eat a nice homey meal. I'm sure the battlefield is rough. But what Uriah shows here is respect for the purity laws, a respect for Yahweh. Although a Hittite, a foreigner, not a technical member of the people of God. 
he is faithful. What a stark difference from David, right? The famed king named as the man after God's own heart, who does not even fight in his own war with his armies as commanded by Yahweh, who takes another man's wife, again, breaking Yahweh's commands. And finally, he ends it all by taking the life of Uriah. And this is where our story ends for at least our lectionary reading today. Thanks for revisiting this story with me. But what does, you know, what does the story tell us? What stood out to you? I know that for me, one thing that really stood out very clearly was that this story is about David. The narrator starts with him, the narrator ends with him. Nearly all the action verbs are attributed to him. The narrator isn't concerned with the perspective or experience of any other character. It is clearly all about him, the abuser. Maybe you can tell, uh, I tried really hard this week to recenter the story around Bathsheba, to find her, to hear her, to give her a voice, to maybe redeem her, to give attention to her and the abuse that she faced. But we cannot, because the text doesn't do this. It really tells us nothing about what she went through, the abuse that she suffered. And as a result, she gets overshadowed by David. Or even worse, people speak for her, placing labels and actions on her that she can't even defend. Some of you may remember that a couple of years ago, I preached on the story of Hagar, another woman abused by the people of God, Abraham and Sarah. But even in that story, we see Hagar and her child. We get to hear of their experience and even see God's action, and maybe even inaction. But we don't even get that with Bathsheba. And I think that's important. We shouldn't just like gloss over this. The fact that the narrator of the story doesn't even care about Bathsheba. Why? Does God not care about Bathsheba? What do we do with this silence? You know, uh, Eric was preaching a couple weeks ago and um, he mentioned that the Old Testament is always in conversation with itself. That's true. It's, it always argues with itself. It tests itself. And we can do this too. We can ask, why is the victim lost in the story? Why is the wrong done to her overshadowed by her abuser? What does it say about humanity? What does it say about culture? What does it say about us? I wonder if that's actually what we're supposed to do with this story. About a year ago, I sat in on a Zoom guest lecture with the biblical scholar Kathleen O'Connor, one of my favorites. At one point in the lecture, she was asked by a student, what do we do with these hard problematic texts in the Bible? She nodded in compassion and understanding and said, when we're bothered by a story in the text, maybe we're supposed to be. Maybe we're supposed to wrestle with it and not just quickly move on trying to protect it or defend the Bible. Maybe it's trying to tell us something is wrong in this story, in this world. 
we know from other biblical texts that God does care for the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the abused. So what can we learn about Bathsheba and her experience from this story? Well, the text keeps bringing us back to David. So maybe we can learn something about Bathsheba by looking at how the narrator talks about David, the ways that they treat David. And maybe most importantly, in the ways that we think about David. There's no doubt that the narrator implicates David in this story as the one taking all the action, the perpetrator, the sinner, the one who abuses his power, his authority, his privilege. The power dynamic is pretty clear here. No one can say no to the king, to David. Not his messengers, not Bathsheba, not Joab. That may be why David is so incensed and beside himself when Uriah refuses him on multiple occasions. But Uriah doesn't just say no. Uriah's no's appeal to a higher power, a higher authority than David's, Torah law, the law of Yahweh. David may think that he has the power, that he is in control and that he can get away with whatever he wants, but Uriah's faithfulness to Yahweh's law, even as a Hittite, not even an Israelite, serves as a contrast to David's faithlessness to Yahweh, the supposed man after God's own heart. Perhaps this can serve as a warning for us and who and what we put our trust in. My sermon a couple years ago looked at the faith, faithlessness of Abraham and Sarah, the people of God. Today we're talking about David, the man after God's own heart. This is not an anti-Semitic sermon, so please don't hear me there. But what I am saying is that even the people of God, even the people who God places in authority, whatever that means, <laughs> are not above God's law, the law of love, the law of justice, the law of selflessness and sacrifice. Not Abraham and Sarah, not David, not the nation state of Israel, not the empire of the United States, not the president, not the Republican party, not the Democratic party, not the church, not a priest, not a pastor, no one. I don't care how much God loves them or how so-called blessed they are. They are not, we are not above the law of Yahweh. You know, I'm so, this is Lauren speaking, right? <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing people defend evil just because the perpetrators are blessed or the people of God. That's just not biblical. We don't, we don't see that in scripture. We see that today with leaders and with nations. We even see that in how we read some of these so-called biblical heroes. I mean, this is just one of, many, of David's many, many egregious, disgusting crimes. And yet we still heroize him because scripture calls him a man after God's own heart. Instead of facing the gruesome realities of what he did, we say, look, God forgave him. God still called him a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but <laughs> look what else scripture says about him. And look what else scripture says about those around him. In today's story, 
Bathsheba looked more like a woman after God's own heart. Following Torah law so that she could go into the temple and worship. Uriah looked more like a man after God's own heart. Following Torah law above David's orders, risking his life in refusing the king. And maybe, you know, this is where we come back to Bathsheba. Although we don't see her or hear her story, her perspective, Yahweh will not stand for the injustice laid on her. Yahweh will put David on blast, recorded for all of history to witness. What David tried to keep hidden, secret, conniving with all these in-between men to do his dirty work, Yahweh will expose it all. And yes, in future weeks, we may be able to learn more of what happened to David and his punishments. Many of you probably already know, and many of you may argue that his punishments were still not enough. That's fair. But let's not lose the lesson by getting distracted with how we might indict David. May we be cautious of who and what we put our trust in. Loyalty and hope in leaders and systems must have their limits. Nothing can be above critique. Nothing can be above Yahweh's law, the law of love. Thank you.